Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome everyone to episode number 60 from Delving into Islam podcast. This is your host, Wa'il. And it is a blessing from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and a privilege that I'm able to talk to you about the religion of Islam and that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is allowing me to share my knowledge with you guys. Thank you so much for listening and thank you for sending in all your questions and suggestions. And speaking of which, if you have any questions, please email me at delvingintoislam at gmail.com. Again, delving into to islam at gmail.com and i will get back to you as soon as possible inshallah with that being said let's get right into today's topic and today's topic we will uh, uh, talk about medina so we all know that the prophet eventually migrated or emigrated from mecca to medina right after you know the the persecution had increased and the Muslims were tortured a lot, so uh, and the Prophet ﷺ had no protection, so now it, it's, there's danger coming from everywhere, right? Now, we need to know what is Medina exactly. So we know what Mecca is, right? Now we understand Mecca, we understand the people of Mecca. So what is Medina? Medina actually used to be called Yathrib before Islam. So before the Prophet ﷺ traveled to Medina, uh, uh, and uh, uh, you know he changed the name from Yathrib to uh, Medina. So before again before Islam, it used to be called Yathrib, uh, and it was like an oasis, right? So uh, uh, Yathrib was like an oasis, and it had three groups, three main groups living in it. the The first two groups are Arab tribes, one by the name of Aus and the other by the name of Khazraj, right? And then the third group was a large uh, Jewish group that had also multiple tribes within, you know, that group. Uh, now, the Aus and the Khazraj, the two Arab tribes, of course, they were pagan. Uh, they were at a civil war with one another. They had, uh, uh, there were wars going on, uh, uh, multiple, you know, battles and all these things, and it ended with a huge battle called the Battle of Ba'ath. And the Battle of Ba'ath uh, resulted in the death of so many of the elders of both groups, both tribes. And uh, all what's left was the youth. And there's a wisdom in that, and we'll talk about it in a little bit. And but also, it's very uh, uh, you know important to mention that there was a guy, a man by the name of Abdullah ibn Ubay ibn Salul, and that guy was an elder. He survived the war, and it was supposed to be his uh, uh, reign, his his time to rule after the war. So uh, he was supposed to rule, and. Uh, uh, and, of course, when Islam came, that didn't happen, and that caused him to become the leader of the hypocrites. So, uh, just briefly, the hypocrites are a group of people from Medina who pretended that they were Muslims, but they were actually not Muslims. They were trying to sabotage Islam from within, and they were trying to betray the Muslims and all these things. And Allah actually mentions them in the Quran. There's a whole chapter, by the way, called the hypocrites, al-munafiqun. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks about them in that chapter and actually other chapters as well. Now, let's come to the, the Jewish group. And the Jewish group, they always felt that they were superior to the Arabs. Because, you know, they have a religion, they have a text, they have a book from God, right? And they had a prophet and all these things. And that actually caused them to have a, a, a higher and a better civilization than the rest of, you know, uh, Yathrib. So they always used to rub it in their faces. They used to actually say, hey... Yeah, we're better than you. Hey, in, in a way, in the, the way they dealt, they dealt with them, right? There was some sort of arrogance. And they also said, oh, there is another prophet that God would send. And when he comes, he will lead us against you because you are pagans. And we will be victorious over you. And basically, we will take over. You guys won't exist anymore because of that prophet that will come uh, from God. Uh, now, ironically, uh, when the Prophet ﷺ comes to them, they will actually reject his message, right? It's very ironic. But anyway, now, uh, uh, now what happened is that because of the mockery of uh, you know of the of the rest of the tribes uh, by the Jewish group, uh, they felt some sort of way that the, especially the Khazraj, right? So they wanted something similar. They wanted to have a, a a messenger of their own that they could follow. They wanted to, you know, have a message from God and all these things. So they really needed that. And 
and that actually was very uh, one of the things that subhanallah made them accept islam uh, a little bit easier than they would have if you know if they were not taunted by the jewish group now there was a, a small group about six or seven men who used to go to do hajj in mecca and then uh, when they went to Mecca to do the, of course, it's the pagan hajj, right? Uh, they uh, uh, were doing tawaf and then they found the Prophet ﷺ preaching Islam. Now, the Prophet ﷺ, because again, we said he had no protection. So he started preaching Islam to foreigners, people who are from outside of Mecca. So if they accept the religion of Islam and they, you know, follow the Prophet ﷺ, the Prophet ﷺ would seek their protection, like a political asylum, right? And he was preaching, you know, to a lot of, you know, foreigner tribes and people who come to Mecca for trading or to perform hajj. And none of them actually uh, accepted. So this group from Yathrib comes in and then they started listening to the Prophet Sallallahu He preaches Islam to them. He tells them everything, you know, uh, you have to worship uh, Allah and leave idolatry and all these things. And it actually made sense to them. It actually made sense to them. And they thought, would that be the prophet that, you know, uh, the Jewish group was talking about? And uh, uh, again, the message was, you know, appealed to them. And they decided to uh, uh, accept Islam. And they actually became Muslims. And again, we said, number one, that battle that we talked about, the battle of Ba'ath, that a lot of, you know, the elders died uh, in. What's, what was left after that battle was the youth. And the youth, and you, this actually applies in our time, are more accepting of change than the elders. Again, youth are more accepting of change than the elders. And subhanAllah, the elders, they're, they're now gone. You know, they were pagans, they fought one another, and they're now gone. So the youth... When they hear about a new religion, they will at least investigate. They will at least think about it and ponder about, you know, that, that message and, you know, uh, and try to uh, dig deeper into the religion of Islam. And that actually what happens even nowadays, the people who are accepting Islam are youth from the youth. Yeah, some, some elders, but trust me, the majority are from the youth. Why? Because number one, they are willing to change their lifestyle. They are willing to change the traditions of their parents and grandparents and grand-grandparents. They're, they're not willing to stick to that tradition. But when you are old, you are already set. Your mind, of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala guides whomever he wants. But we're talking about, you know, when you talk about the demographics that Islam appeals to, it is the youth, right? And that's exactly what happened with the people from Yathrib. They were young, they accepted the message, actually they went back to their people and they started preaching Islam. Now after a while, more uh, people from Yathrib accepted Islam. So now that means that Islam was spreading uh, in Yathrib slowly. And then more people accepted Islam in Yathrib, and then more people, and then more people. And now there were about... 70 plus people who accepted Islam. Now there were, you know, small groups who were accepting. And these new converts started to feel worried about the Prophet ﷺ. They were worried about him because all the persecution in Mecca, all these things, right? So they decided, you know what? We need to go talk to the Prophet ﷺ. And by the way, most of them never met the Prophet ﷺ. Most of them never met the Prophet ﷺ. You know, they just heard the message from their neighbors or, you know, people from Yathrib. Never met the Prophet ﷺ. A small group met the Prophet ﷺ, not the majority. And that shows you, and subhanAllah, that shows you why today many Muslims feel upset when somebody insults the Prophet ﷺ. You know, we never met him, but we love him because of his message. The message that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given him to deliver to us. His mannerisms. How he was worried about us. Us. The later generation of the Muslims. Us. You know. He was worried about us as if he knew us. All these things. It, you, you, there, there must be something wrong with you if you do not love the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
you know, after studying his life, after knowing what he did, what he sacrificed for our sake, you know, the torture, the persecution, all these things that he took on just to deliver the message to us and to keep the message until the day of judgment, you have to love him. You, you the, Again, it's just, it's very logical. You know, it makes a lot of sense. Now, that group who, you know, majority of them never met the Prophet ﷺ, decided we have to bring the Prophet ﷺ here in Yathrib, right? They said that this is it. We have to bring him here. He has to be our leader. And they actually went to Mecca pretending that they're doing Hajj. They sat with the Prophet ﷺ and they did some sort of a, they had a secret meeting and they did a, a, a covenant. Between uh, all of them, between the the seventy plus and uh, the Prophet ﷺ, it was actually seventy plus men, and there were two uh, uh, famous women in that meeting. Now, they in that covenant, right? They told the Prophet ﷺ, "We need you to come with us. We will provide protection and full support, right? And we want you to be our leader. Come live with us in Medina." But now there was a one condition to that covenant. When you become victorious, you know, uh, when Islam uh, spreads, when Islam becomes uh, a major uh, uh, culture and a religion in the world, you cannot leave us. Now, the Prophet ﷺ is from Mecca, right? So if Mecca becomes a Muslim land later on, the Prophet ﷺ could easily say, okay, I'm going back home now. There's no persecution. They're all Muslims. We're good. That's the thing that worried them. They said, do not do that. You know, of course, with all due respect, but they said, we want you to be with us, even if Mecca becomes a Muslim land. And the Prophet ﷺ agreed to that. Now, it's worth to mention that the Prophet ﷺ never asked to go and be their leader. That was not his goal, right? They wanted that. They were eager to have him come to uh, Medina or Yathrib and they wanted him to become their leader. He never asked for leadership. All he wanted was protection from them and that was it, right? And support. Now, um, while they were, so they took something called the Oath of Allegiance, which basically they, it's their, they're sealing the, the covenant. They're, uh, you know, shaking hands, uh, basically. Uh, 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 they literally were shaking hands, uh, you know, to seal the covenant. And then the Prophet ﷺ actually, you know, shook all their hands, except for the women, of course, because we know the Prophet ﷺ never uh, touched a woman that was not his mahram. Uh, now, what is a mahram? The mahram is uh, any person that the woman could take the hijab in front of. That's the mahram for the woman. Uh, and for the men, the mahram is a woman who could take her hijab in front of you as a man. So, for example, a sister, a mother, a daughter, uh, a, a, an aunt, a grandmother, you know, all, all these are mahrams. Of course, a spouse, a wife, right? So, all these, so for example, a cousin is not a mahram. Right, a cousin cannot take the hijab in front of you, uh, and vice versa. You cannot take as a woman. You cannot take your hijab in front of your cousin. So that makes him not a mahram as well, right? Now, so the Prophet was known to never touch the woman, even by shaking hands. So that's why the the, the two women gave him uh, the oath of allegiance verbally without you know shaking hands. Uh, and yeah, that was that. Now the place that they were in was called the Aqaba. This place is in Mecca. It's 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 an area in Mecca called the Aqaba, and it still exists until today. Now while they were you know shaking hands and and finalizing the the covenant, uh, they heard a very loud voice yelling, "Oh sleeping people! Did you know that there is a group of people who formed an alliance with Muhammad to go to war against you?" So it's clear that that person is trying to warn the people of Mecca after they witnessed this covenant or this oath of allegiance. So the Prophet ﷺ says, This is Adab ibn Udayb, the shaitan of Aqaba. So the Prophet ﷺ recognized the voice and he said, This is Adab ibn Udayb, the devil of the Aqaba. He is an actual shaitan. Shaitan in Arabic means the devil. And uh, of course, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala given him that knowledge. He recognized the voice, you know, by the will of Allah. 
And he said, Shaitan is now frustrated. That means something significant is about to happen. My dear brothers and sisters, we have to understand, Shaitan never speaks out for you know in a voice that we actually could hear. It's very rare when he actually physically communicates with our world. Shaitan whispers. He waits, waits, and whispers. He studies you, studies your weaknesses, and whispers. He sees, you know, uh, your he sees your whims and desires, and whispers. That's his plan. His plan is based on, it's a stealth plan. You he, you don't see him, you don't feel his existence, and it makes it easier for you to follow his whispers. You know, because you don't see them, right? Imagine if you can see Shaitan whispering to you. You won't follow them, right? But as long as the whispers come from inside, then yeah, you're going to follow him, right? So for the shaitan to yell out loud, that shows that the shaitan was frustrated that something significant is about to happen. Now there is a potential that Islam will spread very wide. And he witnessed that and he started yelling to tell people to wake up. And it shows that he got overwhelmed and frustrated with this covenant. Now... Uh, the, the, this group of, 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 of new converts from Yathrib, uh, they said, you know what? We'll just attack everyone right now. You know, we have our swords. We are, we're, you know, 70 plus men. That's, you know, an army, a mini army, right? And we're going to attack them. And, uh, you know, before they even, you know, prepared themselves. But the Prophet Sallallahu said what? He said, no, I was not commanded to do this. Our religion is not to go attack people while they're asleep or go attack people while they're, you know, uh, least expecting or betray people. And th this is significant. It shows you that Islam, it's not about sneaky attacks. Islam is not about, oh, let's go kill them now. No. It's the opposite of that. Islam always resolves to peace first. That's it. When there is an actual act of war, this is when the Muslim should participate. Otherwise, you cannot betray people. You can't betray the government that you live in if it's a non-Muslim government, or of course, it's a, if it's a Muslim government, right? You can't go betray people who are civilians, right? Who are just asleep or, you know, going uh, about their day. You can't do that. And this is manifested here in this situation. I was never commanded to do such a thing. We do not attack people that way, you know? Now, Back to the point. So what they did is they went back to their tents, right? They went back to their tents. Now it's also worth to mention that the when the people, the the, the Muslims, who are, the seventy plus Muslims, did not come alone from Yathrib. Amongst them, there were some pagans, right? But they didn't know what was going on because you know again that meeting was in secret. But those pagans were asleep in their tents. Now in the morning, the people of Quraysh, the people of Mecca, started you know going to those tents and asking. Because of, you know, they heard the yelling of shaitan, right? And they were asking, have you seen Muhammad? Did you talk to Muhammad? Have you seen this and that? And they went to every tent. They asked people. And people were like, no, no. And then they walked into the tent of the people from Yathrib. Now, the Muslims stayed quiet. The Muslims stayed quiet. The pagans responded. And the pagans don't even know what, what, what was going on. So the pagans responded and they said, no, we did not see Muhammad. We don't even know who Muhammad is. You know, and the Muslims stayed quiet and it shows you that they did not want to lie, even though you are as a Muslim allowed to lie to save your life. You're allowed to lie to save your life or the life of a loved one. Allah forgives you for that. Right. So they could have easily did that to stop war. But again, it shows you that, you know, it was resolved without them lying. So Alhamdulillah. Right. Now. The, this group went back to Yathrib afterwards. Now, this group went back to Yathrib and they were preparing for the coming of the Prophet ﷺ. So they were waiting for him to come with the you know, Muslims from Mecca. Now, we need to understand that the Muslims from Yathrib were called the Ansar. This, this term and that name was actually mentioned in the Quran multiple times and it was mentioned in numerous ahadith. The Ansar, right? The supporters, if you want to translate the word, those who make, uh, uh, who support people to make them victorious, right? The Ansar. 
And the people from Mecca, the Muslims from Mecca, because of the incident of the emigration, will be called the Muhajirun or the Muhajirin. It, it, Muhajirun or Muhajirin, it's, it's the same thing in Arabic, by the way. So again, the people from Mecca are called the Muhajirin. These are two famous groups that are mentioned in the Quran and mentioned in the Sunnah. Two famous groups. The most, they are the elites of the Muslims. If you are looking for who is the best Muslims, of course, you know, we're not counting the Prophet because he's exceptional. He has his own status. But who are the two elite of the world? If you think about it, the Prophet is a Muhajir, right? He is from the Muhajirin. The Muhajirin, he is an immigrant, right? He's going to emigrate. So technically, he is from the Muhajirin. And he's also going to be from the Ansar. Because again, remember that covenant, what did it say? You're going to be with us. You're going to be one of us, and you're going to lead us, and you're never going to leave us, right? So, again, you have the Muhajirin, and you have the Ansar. The Muhajirin, again, remember when I told you about the calendar, the Islamic calendar, is called the Hijri calendar, right? The calendar of the emigration, the Hijri, right? Or the Hijra. And the Muhajirun comes from that word. The, the emigrants are called Muhajirun. The emigration is called the Hijra. Uh, so you get the point. So the Muhajirin and the Ansar, the Ansar now are the Muslims from Yathrib, the 70 plus group. And everybody who becomes a Muslim in Yathrib, right, from Yathrib, is called the Ansar, right? The supporters of the, uh, uh, the Prophet ﷺ. These two are the highest two groups and highest ranks amongst the believers uh, in the sight of Allah. But the Muhajirin, the immigrants, have a slight higher rank. The Muhajirin have a slight higher rank for the following reasons. Number one, the Muhajirin, the, the immigrants, are people who actually lost everything to emigrate to Medina. We'll talk about these stories in a second. They lost their money. They lost their wealth. They lost their homes. They lost their families to be able to emigrate with the Prophet ﷺ to Medina. So that's why they lost everything for the sake of Allah. And don't forget the fact that they were persecuted and tortured before the immigration. They suffered a lot. That's why they have a special status in the sight of Allah. And the Ansar are literally the second rank, which is not by far. Because also they spent all their money on the Muhajirin. They spent all the money on those immigrants that came to them. They were protecting them. They supported them. They supported the Prophet ﷺ and they became one nation. They were sharing their meals. They were sharing their homes with them. Like, And they had no problem. They never felt, oh, these are intruders. Why do we have to take care of them? Never. And how do we know that they never felt this? Because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says this in the Quran. Because Allah knows what's in our hearts, remember? Allah says what? And, and this is a beautiful, beautiful couple of verses uh, from the chapter of Hashr. لِلْفُقَرَاءِ الْمُهَاجِرِينَ الَّذِينَ أُخْرِجُوا مِنْ دِيَارِهِمْ وَأَمْوَالِهِمْ يَبْتَغُونَ Allah says, for the poor immigrants. Now, why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala call them poor? Because they were not poor in Mecca, right? Many of them came from, you know, uh, uh, wealthy families. Because they lost everything in the process of the emigration. Abu Bakr, you know, every penny he had took it with him to support the Prophet ﷺ, to give it to the Prophet. ﷺ. The rest, they had to give up their money, they had to give up their wealth. And again, we'll get to the stories. To give up their wealth, everything, their families, to be able to emigrate. Because the people of Quraysh, the people of Mecca were like, you're not leaving unless you give up everything. You wanna you wanna you wanna travel? Go ahead. But you have to give up everything. Right? That's why Allah calls them the poor immigrants. Here's another fact, my dear brothers and sisters, uh, about the immigrants. On the day of judgment, we said that the day of judgment will be fifty thousand years, right? Okay. They will enter Jannah. 500 years before anyone else. Again, the Muhajireen, the immigrants from Mecca to Medina, 
will enter Jannah on the day of judgment 500 years before anyone else. Can you imagine? Not just that, and they will occupy the highest ranks of Jannah, of paradise. Now, the Ansar, again, are incredibly praised. They are literally the second highest ranked group uh, among the believers. They're mentioned in the Quran. Let's continue the verses. Uh, they all they wanted is to please Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And they support Allah and his of course Allah does not need support, but they support the cause of Allah, the message of Allah. That's what, what's meant, right? They support the message of Allah and his messenger. Those are the truthful believers. That's Allah's talking about the muhajireen. Those who were waiting for the muhajireen to come to share with them their meals, to share with them their homes, you know, and Allah saying, and you find nothing in their hearts from doing that. They don't feel any, they don't have any hard feelings. They're not saying why those people are coming to share my meals. Why those people are coming to share my house. They're not saying any of that. They feel nothing. They're very humble. And they love their brothers and sisters in Islam. You know? Look at the, 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 the verse after. Now Allah is talking about a third group. Those who will come after. And they make dua to Allah. Oh Allah, forgive us. And forgive those who were before us. From the believers. Do you know who Allah is talking about in the third category? It's us, my dear brothers and sisters. It's us. Anyone who came after these two groups. So it's not just us. It's us and everybody before us, you know, except for the two groups and everyone who's going to come after us. But only the believers of us. Only the believers. Not everyone else. Not just any Muslim. Only the believers. So may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes us from uh, that third category, Amin. Now, let's talk about some of the stories of the muhajireen, uh, of the immigrants leaving Mecca. Uh, one of the stories was uh, the story of Abu Salama. So Abu Salama was married. He was not actually from Mecca. He was from outside of Mecca. And uh, he uh, uh, married someone from Mecca, Ummu Salama. And he uh, technically moved in with her in Mecca. And they had uh, a son. And the time came for immigration. So they were leaving. And then, of course, the people of Quraysh, they found out. So they stopped the caravan from leaving. And then they said, where are you going? He said, we're going to Medina. He, they said, no. You can go. You're not from us. You're not one of us. You can go. But your wife stays and your son stays because they are from Quraysh, technically. The lineage part. That's it. You want to go? Go ahead. And actually, he was not even allowed to stay anymore. He was forced to leave without his wife and his son. Now, after that, his tribe, again, we said he's not from Mecca, right? So his tribe found out about what happened. He did not communicate to them. They just heard about what happened. He went to Yathrib. Now, he lives in Yathrib, right? And his tribe comes in and they try to take the kid now, his son. Again, this is tribalism kicking in, right? This is tribalism like they want to, we want the, the, we don't care about the wife. We don't care about, you know, it's his, this son is our right. He's our son. We're taking him from you. And they almost had a fight uh, to take the son, which one, could, you know, should take the son. And then the mother said, please just let him go. She was telling her own tribe, uh, Quraysh, let him go. Let the, that tribe, let the father's tribe take the son. I don't want him to die in the process, please. So they took the son. So now the family is divided. 
Ummu Salama lives in Mecca. Her son lives with the tribe of his father and, her, uh, and his father and her husband. He lives in Yathrib. And they're not allowed to see each other. And for a year and a half, that was the situation. For a year and a half, Ummu Salama would, you know, cry in the middle of the desert. You know, she barely eats, barely drinks. She's devastated. Her family is not with her, right? Her family is not with her. Now, what happened is, is that one of her cousins felt bad for her. So he went and he talked to the elders and he told them, can you please, you know, let her go. You know, she barely eats. She barely drinks. She's going to die. You know, she's just let her go. Let her go find her, her family. And the elders, you know, after they thought it through and whatever, they just decided to let her go. Uh, she went, grabbed her son. Again, her husband's tribe, they were okay with it. They let go of the son since it's the mother and says there's no, you know, challenge from uh, the people of Mecca. Again, it's all tribalism. It's all like you, you, who's tougher, right? So she came, they saw her crying, whatever. They gave him the child. Now, she took her child and she was looking for the way to go to Yathrib. Now they want to go to Abu Salama, the, the father, right? And they couldn't find a way. She was lost in the desert. Now, while she was lost with her child, she meets uh, Uthman ibn Talha. Now, Uthman ibn Talha is not a Muslim yet. Uh, he's from Mecca, right? And he becomes a Muslim later on, but for now, he's not a Muslim, right? And he offers to take her to her husband. He, of course, he knows he, he's a traveler. Uh, you know, he, do, he does trades and whatever. And he knows the way to go to Yathrib. So he offers to take her to Yathrib, right? And on the way, it was like, a, like I said, Yathrib is a two-week journey. She uh, was sitting with her son on his camel. And he was just dragging the camel uh, behind him. And he was just, you know, walking towards Yathrib. And they finally reached Yathrib. And then, you know, he sent her to her husband and then went back. Uh, on his own uh, uh, to, you know, to Mecca. Now, who is Uthman ibn Talha? We said he was not a Muslim yet, but then he converted to Islam before the conquest of Mecca. Now, we all know, again, that the Prophet ﷺ will eventually come back to Mecca and he will conquer Mecca. Uh, and uh, he will take back Mecca without any fight, by the way. There will no be, the, the, the Muslims will be too big of a force that there will be uh, there will be no uh, battle. Like the the people of Mecca will actually um, surrender uh, and n not do anything, and then uh, many of them will convert. Some will leave, and and so forth. Now, so he converted before that, and and why do I say that? Why do I mention that he converted before the conquest of Mecca? Because Allah Subhanahu wa Taala in the Quran mentions, I think, in the chapter of Hadid the chapter of the iron, mentions that those who converted before the conquest of Mecca are not equal to those who converted after. Again, those who became Muslims before the conquest of Mecca are not equal to those who converted after. The ones who converted before are in a much higher rank, much higher rank, like you can't even compare to the ones who converted after. And the reason why is because those who converted after they were technically either converting because, you know, they had no other choice. They converted too late. They were just, you know, forced to convert mentally. Of course, they were not physically forced. Nobody's forced to uh, convert to Islam. This mentioned in the Quran a lot, right? Um, and they were, they, they felt like they were forced in terms of like, we have no other choice. Where are you going to go? Let's just convert to Islam. Later on, they actually become sincere Muslims. Later on, they become sincere Muslims, but at the same time, it was too late, you know? They still get rewards, insane amount of rewards, right? But they uh, are not equal to those who suffered before or, you know, joined the Muslims uh, before that conquest. So Talha is one of the blessed ones, and actually the, the verse in the Quran says, لا يستوي منكم من أنفق من قبل الفتح وقاتل this is very explicit. Those who spent money for the sake of Allah, those who fought for the sake of Allah, those who became a Muslim for the sake of Allah before Al-Fatih, the conquest of Mecca, they're not equal to those who did the same exact things after. 
أولئك أعظم درجة من الذين أنفقوا وقاتلوا Those are in a much higher rank That doesn't mean that the ones who, you know, uh, did uh, became Muslims after the conquest are, are no good Absolutely not, right? Absolutely not It's just Allah says those are special Muslims That's all Those are special Muslims, the ones who did that before the conquest Now so Uthman ibn Talha is one of those who got that blessings of being from the group that believed and became a Muslim before the conquest of Mecca. Now, Uthman ibn Talha, when the conquest of Mecca came, right? So now uh, Uthman is already a Muslim, right? So when 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 the Fath took place, when when you know Muslims be, uh, uh, went inside uh, of Mecca, the Prophet sallallahu gave the keys of the Kaaba. You know the Kaaba where Muslims do the Hajj, right? The black uh, cube. They gave the keys of the Kaaba to Uthman. And the Prophet said, It shall be with him and among his descendants until the day of judgment. Again, Uthman was given the keys of Kaaba at the conquest of Mecca. And the Prophet said, Those keys shall be with you and with your descendants until the day of judgment. And now, in Saudi Arabia, those who are in control, those who are, uh, are guardians of the Kaaba or have the keys of the Kaaba are actually from the descendants of Uthman ibn Talha, believe it or not. So this is just a little bit of information that the, 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 the keys of, uh, of the Kaaba goes all the way to Uthman ibn Talha, the man who helped Umm Salama. And by the way, Umm Salama, later on, another uh, another information, she actually marries the Prophet ﷺ because her husband dies and she becomes a widow. And the Prophet ﷺ offers to marry her and she becomes one of the wives of the Prophet ﷺ and she's considered to be one of our blessed uh, mothers in Iman. Now, another Muslim was about to leave Mecca. His name was Suhaib al-Rumi or Suhaib the Roman. And the reason why he was named the Roman is because he was a slave for the Romans. He spoke their language and he grew up there. Then uh, he was sold back to an Arab uh, uh, owner because he actually is from an Arab descent. Hence, he was given the name the Roman, right? So Suhaib was on his way to Medina. And before he left, he hid all of his wealth. He kind of buried it somewhere where no one can find it. Uh, so, you know, because it was not easy to travel with, you know, a lot of money and wealth uh, from, you know, the thieves and all these things. And he was thinking, and he was thinking, you know, later on, I'll come back and, uh, you know, take my wealth and go back to Medina, right? Uh, when things, you know, calm down. So on his way uh, out of Mecca, of course, the people of Quraysh, the people of Mecca, found out that he was, you know, leaving. So they sent a group of people to attack him. So he had on him, uh, you know, a sword, uh, a bow, and a few arrows. So they technically surrounded him, right? And then he said, and this is a very famous uh, uh, phrase that he said. He said, I have 40 arrows in my quiver. And I promise you, none of you will touch me until I use all my arrows on you. And then when I finish my arrows, I still have my sword. And I swear by Allah that no one will be able to get to me until I get to them first. Basically, whoever comes in will die until I finish all my weapons. You know? And he's telling them it won't be an easy fight. I'm not an easy target here. And he was known to be a good archer, by the way. Now, they all stood. It was like a Mexican standoff, right? They all stood not knowing what to do, right? And then Suhaib said to, you know, uh, c come up with a solution for this, you know, uh, conundrum. He said, what if I tell you where I hid all my wealth? Would you let me go? So they said, yeah, of course, we, we'll let you go. But if you are lying about where the, your wealth is, we will kill you. We will come, we will chase you, we'll catch up to you on the road, and we will finish you. And Suhaib never intended to lie in the first place, you know. But he said, yeah, sure. And he gave him the location, and they actually go there, and they got all his wealth. And Suhaib gave up his wealth just that easy. He didn't care about it. He didn't even think about it twice. It was worth it, you know. He was doing this for the sake of Allah. 
And then later on, the Prophet ﷺ, when he saw Suhaib, right, he looked at him and he smiled. And he said that Allah revealed something about him in the Quran. This this verse was actually mentioned. This verse, uh, chapter of the Baqarah, uh, verse number two hundred seven. Uh, Allah Subhanahu wa Taala actually addresses that situation with Suhaib before. Now the Prophet didn't see the situation, but it shows you this is the miracle of the Quran that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala informed the Prophet about what happened with Suhaib, and He revealed a verse about it. Now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying in that verse, there are people who would sell everything they have and sell even themselves for the sake of pleasing Allah. So after the Prophet وسلم, uh, recited the verse to Suhaib, he smiled at him and he said, your business transaction with Allah has been successful. My dear brothers and sisters, we could have successful business transactions with Allah. I know we all like to invest. No one doesn't like to, you know, gain money or profit. No one doesn't. We all do. But the most successful and the most profitable business transaction you could ever invest in or you could ever make, period, in this existence is the one you make with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. When you pay charity for his sake, when you spend time worshiping Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, this is a business transaction with Allah. And I promise you, this, this, this type of business transaction, you would never lose in it. Your side will always win. So that is another story, you know, with Suhaib. Now, let's go to the story of Umar ibn al-Khattab. Umar ibn al-Khattab's story is very, uh, very interesting, right? So, uh, Umar ibn al-Khattab, we know he's fearless. He does not, you know, care about anything. So, basically, when he decided to emigrate, uh, now comes. Now, let's talk about the story of Umar ibn al-Khattab uh, emigrating to Medina. So, Umar ibn al-Khattab, we all know now by now that he is fearless. He does not. Uh, you know, get intimidated by anyone. He's not afraid of anyone except for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, right? And when it's time, it was time for him to leave, he put on his gear, you know, swords, shields, etc. And then he went to Kaaba to do tawaf. And of course, the tawaf he did was not the pagan one. It was the actual one, you know, the, the, the proper tawaf. And then he stops and announces to everyone, Oh, people of Mecca, if one of you wishes for his mother to lose him or for his children to become orphans or for his wife to become a widow, then try to stop me from leaving and going to Yathrib. Straight up. Straight up. If you want your loved ones to lose you, all right, come and try to stop me. It shows the bravery of Omar. And of course, no one you know, tried to stop him. No one was able to. So then he made a plan with two more companions to travel together, Hisham and Ayash. These were two companions that they said, you know what, we will travel with Umar ibn al-Khattab. And they agreed, you know, to meet somewhere uh, outside of Mecca. One of them did not show up, which was Hisham, and they kind of realized, you know, if he didn't show up, that means he got caught. So the other two will just proceed. You know, so Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu and Ayash, they left to Medina, to Yathrib. After they got to Yathrib and they stayed a little bit, Abu Jahl, remember Abu Jahl, the worst enemy of, of the Prophet He actually traveled to Medina with, you know, uh, a relative. Now, Ayash, the Sahabi who went to Medina with, Abu, uh, with, uh, with Umar ibn al-Khattab, Ayash is actually half-brother with Abu Jahl, he is. They share. Uh, they share the same mother uh, from two different fathers, right? So he's li- literally half brother of Abu Jahl, uh, and then Abu Jahl came to him in Medina in Yathrib and told him, "Hey, our mother is suffering. She's dying because of what you did. She's not eating. She's not drinking. She's about to die. You know." And if she dies, it will be on you. 
He was basically guilt tripping him. Now, Ayash felt bad. That's his mother, you know. So he decided to go back with Abu Jahl. He's like, okay, you know what? I'll go take care of her and then I'm going to come back. Omar did not like this. Omar ibn Khattab did not like this. He said, this is a trap. Do not go with them. And he tried to convince them, you know. He's like, you know, if your mother is 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 starving, she could eat. You know, if she's not sleeping, she could go to sleep. Like, you know, what's stopping her, right? Uh, but then Ayash insisted. Again, it's his mother. You know, you have to understand. So Omar said, listen, if you insist to go, then take my camel. Because it's way stronger and way faster than theirs. So Omar ibn Khattab knows exactly, you know, the, the, their camels. And he said, if they try to trick you or anything, you know you could use this camel to run. Right? Uh, and then Ayash agrees. And then on their way to Mecca, Abu Jahl and, and, and uh, the, the other relative, they say basically that their camel is not... Uh, uh, feeling well Their camels are uh, uh, Weak So they asked Ayash If they could share His camel And let the other camels Just you know Go to Go home uh, Without them riding on it And Ayash of course Said Okay You know No problem So Ayash lowered his camel So the camel you know Stops and then it has to lower uh, You have to lower the camel For people to You know Be able to ride on it And once he did that They both attacked him and they, uh, uh, you know, captured him and they put him in prison. They went back to, with him to Mecca and they put him in prison in Mecca. Of course, the prison, they got like an empty house and they throw him in a prison there. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, he meets Hisham, the guy who was supposed to meet with them. Remember the guy who was supposed to meet with them outside of Mecca? It turns out he was already captured as well. And they are both uh, uh, prisoners. Now, our Prophet ﷺ witnessed this. He was still in Mecca. By the way, the Prophet ﷺ was the last to emigrate. He was the last. Him and Abu Bakr, uh, his, his, his best friend, they were the last to emigrate. So the Prophet ﷺ saw what was happening to Ayyash and knew that Hisham was also locked up. So later on, the Prophet ﷺ emigrates. And they're still prisoners. And when he emigrates to Medina, right, uh, the Prophet ﷺ makes dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to save Ayyash and Hisham from the hands of the people of Quraysh. Then he asked the Muslims of Medina, look, again, it shows that uh, number one, I want to talk about this for a second. Our Prophet ﷺ was seeking protection, remember, from uh, uh, the foreigners before he met the people from Yathrib, before he met the Ansar. Right, he was seeking protection, and a, a lot of people were asking, "Doesn't he know that Allah will protect him? Why would he keep seeking for protection? Why would he want someone to protect him when he knows that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala will protect him?" Well, the answer is because you have to seek the means. You have to seek the means. Knowing that Allah would help you does not mean that you do nothing about it. Like you can't be like, "Hey, you know what? Um, um, I pray, uh, I studied." Uh, and uh, I won't go to the test Allah will make me pass I don't have to go and do the work Or I would go to the test without studying Because I know that Allah is with me And Allah is going to support me It doesn't make sense You have to do the work You know Mary The, the, the mother of Jesus Christ Peace be upon him When she was pregnant And she was under a tree Right She had to shake the tree For the fruit to come And drop next to her she had to shake the tree for the fruit to drop next to her. Allah could have easily, easily caused the fruit to drop next to her without her shaking the tree. But she had to do the work. Noah, Prophet Nuh, he had to build an ark to survive the flood. Do you think that Allah was not able to save them without the ark? No. Allah is capable of anything. But they had to seek the means. They had to do the work. Noah had to build an ark. You know, and ask people to come in it to be saved. Same thing with the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ had to seek protection, had to ask for protection, do the work, and Allah will provide protection through whoever was going to protect the Prophet ﷺ. Same thing here in this situation. The Prophet ﷺ makes dua for Hisham and Ayyash to be saved. Was that it? 
the, the, do you think that the Prophet ﷺ expected Allah to, you know, uh, lift them from their uh, uh, from their prison and bring them safely to Medina? No. After he makes the du'a, he goes and asks the Muslims in Medina now, who amongst you is going to volunteer to go and save Ayyash and Hisham? The Prophet ﷺ made the du'a. Now he's seeking the means. Though his du'a should insha'Allah apply on the means. That means whoever is going to go save them, Allah will make them successful. That's what it means to make a du'a in Islam. Make the du'a of... So now, we, when there's something that we're helpless about, that we cannot do anything about. Yeah, we make the du'a and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to fully take care of it. But we always do what we can do. That's you know what Islam preaches. Now, it was not an easy task because you're asking them to go back to Mecca. All the Muslims left Mecca by now. The Prophet ﷺ was the last to leave. So you're asking someone to go back to Mecca and free uh, Hisham and Ayyash from their prison. Nobody wanted to do it. right? Nobody wa wanted to do it except for Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid. Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid was actually Khalid's older brother. Remember Khalid ibn Al-Walid? Khalid ibn Al-Walid is, uh, is the one with the nickname of the Sword of Allah. He is from the city of Ta'if. He is from the city of Ta'if. Uh, and uh, uh, he becomes a great companion. But uh, in the beginning, he is he becomes one of the worst enemies of the Prophet Sallallahu We're talking about Khalid, not his older brother. Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid is the older brother of Khalid. right? And Khalid later on becomes uh, a great companion. Uh, and he converts to Islam also before... Uh, the conquest of Mecca, which puts him uh, in, in a special category. Now, Al-Walid ibn Al-Walid obviously converted way before uh, Khalid, and uh, he volunteers. He said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go rescue them, right? And then Al-Walid travels to Mecca, and he reaches Mecca in the middle of the night. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala somehow helps him find, the, again, that's the dua now. They are doing the work and Allah is helping. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives him an inspiration of where the location of the prison is. He goes there in a you know, uh, stealth mode right at night. And then he uh, uh, was able to you know, cut them loose. And then all three of them went back to Medina safely. Inshallah, next, next episode, we will talk about the actual emigration of the Prophet wasallam. the detail, because that was the most, of course, <laughs> interesting uh, uh, event that took place uh, during the emigration of the Prophet wasallam and Abu Bakr with him. Uh, so yeah, we'll talk about that in the next episode, inshallah. Thank you so much for listening. Wassalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.